Gateway. My name is Ed, and uh, if you're visiting with us, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're in a series of conversations about community, authentic Jesus-centered community. And we have said authentic Jesus-centered community is a group of people who live the life of Jesus with and for one another, sharing their lives and resources in a way that is loving, interdependent, and radically open to others. Uh, we will unpack the third part of that definition today, and this is a four-part series of conversations. But before we do, um, if you would indulge me one more time to help us get to know one another, we are conducting a survey. I've got instructions for those of you who did the survey last week, and thank you, by the way, very much. I'm gonna give you three minutes today. So take out your phone, and let's click on this QR code. The survey should just take a couple of minutes. It's mostly yes and no questions. And we would like you to fill in the blanks. If you did not do the survey last week, uh, you can also go to mygateway.life backslash survey. So please fill that out real quick for us. All we need is your social security number and your bank account. That, that, that works every time. Uh, for those of you who did the survey last week, um, we're also going to initiate something new next week. We're going to start a congregational prayer time. And we will uh, have someone praying over, you know, the needs of the world, but especially the needs of our congregation. So if you go to our website and uh, look at the prayer card, there's a way to leave us a prayer request, and we pray for those prayer requests, but we're, we have added a box. You can check that you wouldn't mind making that prayer public. It will remain anonymous, but if you wouldn't mind making your prayer public, then you will be prayed over in the service next week, and we'll do this once a month. So uh, that go back to that if you would. Yeah, that QR code, thanks, Mike. That QR code will take you to that page on the website. Check it out. Let me give you a third option, and this is, again, for those of you who uh, did the survey last week. I would love for you to dial into the scripture that we're going to be uh, talking about this morning. So grab your Bible or the Bible app on your phone and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This one's going to be familiar to you. 1 Corinthians 13, but read it through and make note of the last wedding that you went to and heard this read. You're going to hear a different context this morning. Uh, Gary Schneider has joined me on the stage, uh, as you can see. Uh, some of you know Gary. For those of you who don't, this is Gary. Gary is the uh, founder, and he used to run Every Orphan's Hope. Now Allison runs it. Gary's a tag-along. Um, but Gary, how did, just, how did Every Orphan's Hope happen? You were, you were on a plane some time ago, and we talked about this yesterday. How did we this did. happen? We did. Thank you, Ed. 21 years ago, I picked up a USA Today traveling on a business trip, and the article was Zambia, the Cradle of Africa's Orphan Crisis. And in that moment, as I read that article, the Lord just extended an invitation to join him to raise up a generation, a remnant of children, orphans in Zambia, Africa, that he was going to raise up for his glory. 
And just to be clear, you were a normal suburban just northern a normal, Virginia. maybe a little less than normal, but yeah, <laughs> uh, just a just a business guy in, in northern Virginia. What's the model for uh, every orphan's hope? So orphans need families, and so what we found was these, these mostly the, the crisis was because of AIDS. Because of AIDS, yeah. I mean, children everywhere, child-headed households, so on and so forth. But what we also noticed there was a widow crisis, and so we had women who had adult children who had all passed away, and now they're destitute, they're widowed. Um, and so we just, God led us to create new families with a widow and eight orphans, four boys and four girls, to really create a new family together in Christ. And that's what we've been doing since 2004. And Gateway has been a partner since 2004. Uh, I remember sharing the vision with you, and you were like, we're in. <laughs> it was that simple. And so, Gateway, you've been a part of seeing a generation of orphans raised up for the glory of God. And let me just tell you one quick story. Yeah, please do. A boy named Max, he's 25 years old. Just last week, Max graduated from nursing school. Now, Max uh, came to us at 10 years old, a double orphan, no family able to care for him, and he moved into a house with one of our mamas. Bright young man, but at the time, feeling pretty hopeless. Um, but as he got to know Jesus and, and know the love of a family, uh, his scholastics improved and he excelled. And Gateway, you've been a part of seeing Max achieve a dream that he would have thought was absolutely impossible 20 years ago. So thank you for being a part of that. And also, thank you for the bike drive yesterday. We have incredible volunteers in this church who showed up, came out, donated bikes, loaded bikes in that container out there. Um, great job, Gateway. You are a tremendous partner in this ministry with us. This, this is kind of amazing, Gary. I mean, you have literally seen a, a generation uh, come, come to life. You and I have gotten older, but you've seen a generation come to Yeah, I know. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I've seen a generation. So that's just yeah. that's amazing. So what's happening right now? There, this is a challenging time right now. It's been so. a challenging time since uh, 2021, actually. We had the U.S. dollar and the exchange rate depreciated by 21% in a very short period of time. We'd never experienced anything like that, which means our cost to run our ministry went up 20% in a very short period of time. And then 22% inflation that same year. And so the last two years have been incredibly difficult. Um, we've been able to maintain all the children in our care and the widows in our care, but we actually have capacity to start five or six new families with eight children in each family that we've had to say no to now for almost two years. And it's not that the children aren't there and don't have that need. We just have not had the resources so that we could take care of the children we have. Um, but we're seeing it stabilize now, the economy, and, uh, and we hope it will improve. But that's a prayer point for us that we would love for you to join us in. Just pray, God has the resources, we know that. He made a promise to these children and to these widows that he would be the father to the fatherless. And so we know he has what we need, and so join us in praying that God continues to provide all that we need, not only for our current kids and mamas, but the ones that we're prepared to receive in the near future. So, uh, Gateway, could you do us a favor? Let's, um, let's pray together. I'm going to ask you, if you would, while we pray, extend your hand toward Gary, and we'll use Gary as a representative of these widows and orphans who are going to be brought into this ministry. So uh, let's pray that God will re release resources. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for breaking Gary's heart with what breaks yours. 
I pray that, uh, well, thank you that you have provided every day. I thank you that your work done your way will never lack your supply. I pray that you will release a new level of resourcing to every orphan's hope and to these families that are not yet together, Jesus, but uh, you know they will be. Uh, you have those resources now. You are preparing them already, and we agree with you, and we ask in advance. We pray a, a thanks in advance for the resources that you will provide. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Thank Gary. You. Okay. Um, did you, I don't know if you saw this. Did you see this? Uh, as at Airbnb CEO, Brian Chesky said this past week, we're probably living in the loneliest time in human history. And back in May, the U.S. Surgeon General issued an advisory warning about the, quote, epidemic loneliness and isolation in this country. Uh, in fact, Dr. Murthy offered a framework at that point for what he called a national strategy to advance social connection. He got some criticism for this. There were those who said, look, the Surgeon General has never spoken into a space like this. What are you doing? And in response to the criticism, Dr. Murthy offered this. Our epidemic of loneliness and isolation has been an unappreciated public health crisis that has harmed individuals and societal health. Listen to this. Our relationships are a source of healing and well-being hiding in plain sight. One that can help us live healthier, more fulfilled, and more productive lives. In other words, uh, Surgeon General Murphy was reminding us that we need community. Now, let's give some context for these statements, where this comes from, because this is not just the pandemic. Americans, by and large, are a very independent bunch. Those of you who have come from other cultures, I, I'm betting at some point you have felt that about our culture. In fact, it has been argued that individualism is the most influential emotional feature of our entire cultural framework. Robert Bella wrote a book in 1985 that became an instant classic. It's called Habits of the Heart, Individualism and Commitment in American Life. And Bella argues that the deeply held American value of individualism helped make American society, but that it has, according to Bella, morphed into something different, into what he calls modern individualism. And this modern variant has become toxic to our culture. It has virtually eliminated the sense of commitment to community and to family and to country that used to hold America together and make her strong. Again, this book was written in 1985 when we were already feeling the strains of toxic modern individualism. This past year, they reprinted the book with a new preface, and as you can imagine, the authors did a victory lap and waxed poetic about how we are seeing what they predicted, how we are experiencing the fruit of what our culture has been marinating in for at least the last two generations. Here's the thing. Our deeply held cultural affirmation of the value and integrity and strength of the individual person and all those individual rights things 
Will that value help form the towns and institutions of this country? It helped build it. But our devotion to those of our community and our commitments to one another, that's what made us a nation and a great one. Modern individualism has been the undoing of the devotion and commitments side of that. I'm trying to think of an analogy. You might have a better one. But imagine a shoe. I told you we would explain this this week. Uh, and think of, it's almost like the, 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 the leather and the soles of the shoe, the substance of the shoe was built, was formed by our commitment to individualism and, and the can-do American spirit. But the laces, the laces are like our, our commitments to one another and our commitments to our community, and they hold the shoe together. They hold it in place. And when you remove the laces, the shoe flops around on your foot. It becomes dysfunctional, and it's eventually destroyed. And that's what's happened to our culture under the influence of modern individualism. I've talked about this before, but numerous studies have been conducted over the years that demonstrate this, this American independence, this American individualism. For example... We tend to hug less than many other cultures. We work independently more. We work with teams less than other cultures. And even when we work with teams, we work on individual assignments within a team structure. We hold our children less than many other cultures. And most other cultures keep their children literally closer to their bodies, longer into their childhood than we as Americans do. We also let others hold our babies more, less frequently than many other cultures. And most sociologists will suggest that all of these trends are just American parents preparing their children for the culture they're going to live in. And probably as a result of those trends, American children tend to think of leaving home earlier, and they tend to think of themselves as independent of parental oversight far sooner than most other cultures. I'm not trying to suggest that any of that is right or wrong. It just is what it is. And I want to remind you that those of you who have come here from other cultures, try as you might to hang on to your home culture, and I hope you are trying. You are raising little Americans. This is what it is, but it can, and it often has, led to a kind of spiritual independence and individualism as well. This is a prominent feature of modern individualism. We as Americans imagine ourselves on our own trek spiritually, alone, individually, us and God. Do you know the phrase personal relationship with Jesus Christ? If you've been in church uh, and you're of a certain age or older, I guarantee you know that phrase. I grew up on that phrase. It was standard issue for churches in the Bible Belt for most of the 20th century. Do you know that phrase is nowhere in the Bible? Now, personal relationship with Christ, personal relationship with Christ, it's a fine phrase. Three or four generations of us grew up with that phrase, and it works well with the teaching of the Bible. But you mix that phrase with modern individualism, and you do serious damage to authentic Jesus-centered community. And that's what's happened. Of course, there's some truth to that alone perspective. As we said last week, we come to Christ as individuals. We make an individual, independent decision to follow Jesus, but then immediately we are plunged into a network of relationships, the body of Christ, Paul 
talked about and we looked at last week. The Christian life is a communal life. It is a shared life. We have said that the idea of church, that's a virtual synonym with that phrase, authentic Jesus-centered community. And we as Americans often struggle with community. So guess what else we struggle with? We need community. We need a spiritual posse, but we as Americans often choose other priorities to our detriment. According to the Surgeon General, the physical health consequences of poor or insufficient connection include 29% risk of heart disease, 32% increased risk of heart disease, 32% increased risk of stroke, 50% increased risk of developing dementia for older adults. Additionally, lacking social connection increases risk of premature death by all, uh, across all spectrums by more than 60%, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on. The health consequences of not having connections. We need community, and we have chosen other things. We don't have people over for dinner. We don't give large gifts to people in need. We don't confess our needs to one another. We don't confess our sins to one another. We don't join small groups at church. We don't attend church regularly. When we attend, we don't enter in. We don't volunteer. We don't email encouragements. We don't pray for one another. We don't offer words of encouragement and correction to one another because we're not praying for one another and because we don't know one another that well. Fortunately, that's not true for many of you. But for many of us, it is. And generally speaking, it is increasingly true of our culture, and we don't see the problem. Because it's, it's just soup that we're being cooked in. We've ended up desperately lonely and disconnected, and we just can't figure out why. We need community, but we as Americans often choose other priorities. Let me illustrate you know, the emotional impulse, why I think this happens. I need vegetables. If you try to work on your eating at all, you know this. To get the, the nutrients and, and vitamins that I need, I need, that my body needs vegetables to be healthy. But there is literally never a moment in my week when I'm thinking, just give me some broccoli. And if I'm starving and driving down the street, I'm starving and I'm driving down the street and I pass a Chick-fil-A, I don't think, yuck, I need vegetables. No, I think I could murder a Chick-fil-A sandwich and fries because my, 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 my body needs it, but it, it never demands it. In the same way, you need community, but you have chosen other priorities, which are satisfying in the short run, but not in the long. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 13. We're not going to spend a lot of time on our passage this morning. I'm going to get, because you know this passage really well, I'm going to give you five high-level observations about 1 Corinthians 13, but I, I want us to read it together. It's a passage you're familiar with. It was at your last wedding, probably. 1 Corinthians 13, let's stand together out of reverence for God's word. Let's go old school. And I'll read from the top. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but have not love, I'm, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just making a lot of noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith and move mountains but I don't have love, worthless, I'm nothing. 
If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there's tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I, came, when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And, and now look, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You may be seated. Well, first of all, let's get the real context for passage. Because as I said, you have heard this a number of times at weddings. And wedding is a fine context for reading this because it, it's a, a, essentially a, a, a God-honoring definition of love. But the context is we, we read the chapter before it last week and we referenced the chapter before that the week before. This is a, a the context is a church in conflict. This is being addressed to other believers in Christ This is about church. Second, according to 1 Corinthians 13, love is an action. Love acts in certain ways, and it does not act in other ways. Think about that the next time some spouse tells you that they don't love their spouse. They're they're saying something about their choice. Certainly the Bible knows about the emotion of love. But essentially, at its core, Love is, love is an action that we choose. Third, love is for the other. Now, this is obvious, but let's state the obvious. It acts in ways that are for the other. It is for the other person. Remember that with and for part. Fourth, love is interconnected with the other. It is interdependent. It acts in ways that are interdependent. It is not self-seeking. It always protects and always trusts. It is bound to its object. Again, last week we used Paul's analogy of the body of Christ. It's hard to think of, imagine being more interconnected than that. I want to depart from this for a second and read you uh, an illustration by a, a, a Christian author named Philip Yancey. He wrote a book a number of years ago, Church, Why Bother? And he gives this illustration of church, essentially, authentic Jesus-centered community. He says, I once visited a church that manages with no denominational headquarters or paid staff to attract millions of devoted members each week. It goes by the name Alcoholics Anonymous. I went at the invitation of a friend who had just confessed to me his problem with drinking. Come along, he said, I think you'll catch a glimpse of what the early church must have been like. 
At 12 o'clock on Monday night, I entered a ramshackle house that had been used for six other sessions already that day. Acrid clouds of cigarette smoke hung like tear gas in the air, stinging my eyes. It did not take long, however, to understand what my friend had meant with his comparison to the early church. A well-known politician and several prominent millionaires were mixing freely with unemployed dropouts and kids with needle marks on their arms. Introductions went like this. Hi, I'm Tom, and I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. Everyone instantly shouted out warmly, Hi, Tom! The sharing time worked like a textbook description of a small group marked by compassionate listening, warm responses, and many hugs. Each person attending gave a personal progress report on his or her battle with addiction. We laughed a lot, cried a lot. Most of the members seemed to enjoy being around people who could see right through their facades. There was no reason not to be honest. Everyone was in the same boat. AA owns no property, has no headquarters, no media center, no staff of well-paid consultants and investment counselors who jet across the country. The original founders of AA built in safeguards that would kill off anything that might lead to a bureaucracy. Believing their program could only work if it stayed at the most basic, intimate level. One alcoholic devoting his or her life to help another. Yet AA has proven so effective that 250 other kinds of 12-step groups from Chocoholics Anonymous to cancer patient groups have sprung up in conscious mimicry of its technique. The many parallels to the early church are no mere historical accidents. The Christian founders of AA insisted that dependence on God be a mandatory part of the program. And the night I attended, everyone in the room repeated aloud the 12 steps which acknowledged total dependence on God for forgiveness, parentheses, Agnostic members may substitute the euphemism higher power, but after a while that, seems, that begins to seem inane and impersonal, and they usually revert to God. My friend freely admits that AA has replaced the church for him, and this fact troubles him. AA, he says, borrows the sociology of the church along with a few of the concepts and words, but they have no underlying doctrine, he goes on. I miss that. But mainly, I'm trying to survive, and AA helps me in that struggle far better than any local church. Others in the group explain their ecclesiastical resistance by recounting stories of rejection and judgment. A local church is the last place they would stand up and declare, Hi, I'm Tom. I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. For my friend, immersion into Alcoholics Anonymous has meant salvation in the most literal sense. He knows that one slip could, no, will. Send him to an early grave. More more than once, his AA partner has responded to his calls at 4 a.m. only to find him slouched in the eerie brightness of an all-night restaurant where he's filling a notebook like a punished schoolchild with a single sentence, God help me make it through the next five minutes. I came away from the midnight church impressed, yet also troubled that AA meets needs in a way that the local church does not, or at least did not for my friend. I asked him to name the one quality missing in the local church that AA had somehow provided. He stared at his cup of coffee for a long time, watching it go cold. I expected to hear a word like love or acceptance or knowing him, perhaps anti-institutionalism. Instead, he said softly this one word, dependency. None of us can make it on our own. Isn't that why Jesus came? He explained. Yet most churches give off a self-satisfied air of piety or superiority. 
I don't, I don't see them consciously leaning on God or on each other. An alcoholic goes to church and feels inferior and incomplete. He sat in silence for a while until a smile began to crease his face. It's a funny thing, he said at last. What I hate most about myself, my alcoholism, was the one thing God used to bring me back to him because of it. I know I can't survive without God. I have to depend on him to make it through each and every day. Maybe that's the redeeming value of alcoholism. Maybe God is calling us alcoholics to teach the saints what it means to be dependent on him and on his community on earth. Final observation about 1 Corinthians 13, this love comes from God. Some of you know that the Greeks had four words for love. The word that's used here is the word that means love of God or love that comes from God. And the love that he's, the Apostle Paul is describing here, it can only have one source. And this love, this, this action of loving interdependence, it, this is what holds authentic Jesus-centered community together. This, the love which comes from God, is what keeps authentic Jesus-centered community strong. Pause. If you're listening well, you may be tempted to think, some of you, that Ed is not really so strong. You may be thinking of how weak some churches are that you know of. You've known churches that blew up. Or how weak some small groups are. Certainly lots of small groups have blown up. I get your thinking, but I want to challenge that. I want to ask you to look at it from a different angle. Because that's what we should expect. This movement, the church, authentic Jesus-centered community, it should have fallen apart a long time ago. Think of all the serious church conflicts that you've heard about. Think about the church abuse that has happened. This thing should have died a long time ago, but it's still going. Look, community is difficult. It's made up of people, and people are like porcupines trying to huddle together in the cold at night. We are prickly and difficult. Some of our staff team was telling me this week that I haven't done a good enough job through these conversations about talking about the difficulty of community, and it is difficult. Some of you have even made efforts toward it at points in your life and only to come up disappointed or worse. You've been hurt. That's a real possibility. But we got to say two things in response to that real possibility, right? Number one, because of everything we've said for the last three weeks, it's worth it. You need it. So do I. Secondly, again, That's why it's so amazing authentic Jesus-centered community has lasted. It's difficult. That's a fact. And yet, it still lingers. Something in us longs for it. That's amazing. And it has lasted because it is held together by active, God-initiated, interdependent love. It is not held together by the things we have in common or by a problem or an issue. It is held together not by fear or by force. This thing is held together by interdependent love, which comes from God. Let me offer a a final illustration or picture about this whole thing that we're talking about over these weeks. What I'm arguing against is is the concept of ourselves, think of yourself, as, as being here, this sort of 
isolated individual. And then around you are these activities that you participate in. So there's, you know, I don't, a work project. And there's, there's a, a sports team that you're in or maybe your kids are in. And then, and then there's, there's a parent teacher and your involvement in your kids' classroom. And then there's church. And church is one of those activities that you go to. You go to church. Even if you volunteer, it is, it is for many of us an activity apart from ourselves that we go to, like the work project or the kids' sports team. We go to church. A better analogy might be family. For most of us, we think of family differently from those activities. We don't go to family. We're part of it. We're, we're in a family. We, we're part of it. We belong to family. Family is the larger circle of which I'm a part, and, and it, it makes me more myself, at least in the healthiest families, not less. In the same way, I am, we are, part of authentic Jesus-centered community. We are, the we are the body of Christ. The first followers of Jesus even adopted the language of family, didn't they? They called one another brothers and sisters. We are held together by love. We are interdependent. And in the healthiest church settings, this kind of connection does not diminish us. It enlarges us. I'm going to ask us to read our definition together. So let's go back to the fourth grade. This is French class, and we're going to drill this in. Let's say together, authentic Jesus-centered community is a group of people who live the life of Jesus with and for one another, sharing their lives and resources in a way that is loving, interdependent, and radically open to others. I want us to end this morning by doing a little bit of work. Let's, let's do some reflection, just you on your own. I'm going to ask Mike, if he would, to flash up the characteristics of love. And I want you to take a minute. Don't, don't, um, don't snooze here. I want you to take a minute and ask yourself, which of these characteristics are strengths for you? Which one or two stands out to you as a strength in your life? And why? Why do you think it's a strength for you? Of course, some biology, but maybe, maybe your family did this well, or maybe your family was horrible at this, and you're operating out of muscle. What on here are you, are you good at? I know love doesn't work that way. It's, it's all integrated, but now I want you to ask yourself the opposite question. What are you really not good at? What one or two stand out to you and why? Why are you not? Finally, when you think of this package, who comes to mind? And spend a moment being thankful for them. Thank God for them. Often, the closeness of our relationships is determined by how much we have in common or how easy the other person is to relate to. I want you to look at this quote from C.S. Lewis. 
We are brought together because of Christ's invitation. Remember our phrase, you're not here by accident? And the people he puts us alongside of may well be that very selection of neighbors we have been avoiding all week. Finally, what is the, uh, what is the right next step for you to take that will move you in the direction of loving interdependence with this community? What, what is the right next step? We don't get there in one giant step. In fact, we don't ever get there. That's the other secret we need to acknowledge with one another. But we've got no shot at experiencing all that God has for us and experiencing tastes, hints of authentic Jesus-centered community unless we continue to make steps in that direction. And I'm talking to those of us who've been trying this for a long time. Let's do it again. Let's take another step this fall. What is the next, the right next step for you to take toward loving interdependent relationship here with this community? That's not rhetorical, by the way. That is the question that hangs over this entire four weeks conversation. We'll spend some more time with it next week. Let me finish uh, Yancey's description. From my friend's midnight church, I learned the need for humility, total honesty, and radical dependence on God and on a community of compassionate friends. As I thought about it, these qualities seemed exactly what Jesus had in mind when he founded his church. According to historian Ernest Kurtz, Alcoholics Anonymous came out of a discovery Bill Wilson made in his first meeting with Dr. Bob Smith. On his own, Bill had stayed sober for six months until he made a trip out of town where a business deal fell through. Depressed, wandering a hotel lobby, he heard familiar, the familiar sounds of laughter and of ice clinking in glasses. He headed toward the bar thinking, I need a drink. Suddenly, a brand new thought came to him, stopping him in his tracks. No, I don't need a drink. I don't need another drink. I need another drinker. Walking instead toward the lobby telephones, he began the sequence of calls that put him in touch with Dr. Bob Smith, who would become AA's co-founder. Church is a place where I can say unashamedly, I don't need to sin, I need another sinner. Perhaps together, we can keep each other accountable and on the path. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. Let me close this in prayer. Loving Lord, you, you are the fountain, the source of our love for one another. And we sense your presence. Lord, I ask that you would stir in us, first of all, equipping us with strength and vision for uh, doing this, for, for doing a community. Because we need all the motivation we can get. And then, Lord, I ask that you would give us clarity about what is the right next step for us to take. Where do we step in? What do we take ownership of? Lord, we uh, submit ourselves to you. Move.
strong name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.